episode 119, events at Stonington Island in 1947. When the series last addressed goings-on under Finn Ronnie's remit, the Port of Beaumont, another ship named after a place named after some forgotten punter who did some forgotten thing, reached Valparaiso for watering and bunkering that should have taken three hours. The Darlingtons headed inland to spend their last couple of days together in Santiago. Harry, intending to catch the ship up in Punta Arenas and to collect a couple of llamas to take south to act as tractive power for sledges, elephants and camels being unavailable in South America, I guess. He purchased two animals from the Santiago Zoo using large quantities of pesos, extravagant arm gestures and very little Spanish, only finding out after completing the transaction that he'd bought alpacas and not llamas. Jenny Darlington named the ungulates Jorge and Jorgette. Two alpacas and a husky make booking a nice hotel room difficult, but Harry Darlington was fluent in large numbers of pesos and extravagant arm gestures, if not Spanish, and ensconced his new wife in her accustomed comfort, a far cry from the smelly, dirty ship, and from what lay in the offing of their first year of married life, though she didn't know about this last at the time. Harry headed out to apply his negotiation mode to the problem of acquiring two years worth of feed for the alpacas, while Jenny enjoyed the room service. On their last day in Santiago, Jenny dressed for dinner while Harry waved pesos at the concierge in a bid to arrange train tickets for his travelling menagerie. Instead of the romantic final dinner she anticipated, he arrived at the rooftop restaurant agitated by a newly arrived telegram. Finn Ronnie wanted them back in Valparaiso at the hurry-up, and he wanted Jenny to accompany the expedition to Antarctica. A rushed departure and a rushed ride down the winding roads that lead out of the mountains to the coast with the alpacas and husky on the back of a pickup truck, and suddenly Jenny found herself the centre of an expedition tug-of-war. Jackie Ronnie was going south, and the expedition was split on the matter. A letter circulated seeking signatures, reading, quote, We, the undersigned, feel that it would jeopardise our physical condition and mental balance if the Ronnie expedition, consisting of 20 men, were to be accompanied by one or more females for that period of time spent in the Antarctic. Therefore, we agree to form a united front to block that possibility. We are all prepared to leave the expedition in Valpo as a group if one or more women accompany it. End quote. This document received assent from seven signees. Not enough to completely scupper the expedition, but enough to dent its capacity. The Darlingtons received a deputation of the discontented in their cabin. Quoting their spokesperson, quoted in Jenny Darlington's book, quote, We haven't a majority, so we're willing to compromise. Two women would be better than one. If Jenny goes, we'll tear up the paper. Harry Darlington set dead against the idea, knowing the rigours of the long dark and not wanting to impose them on his bride, and not wanting an already fractious expedition, further dividing against itself over this new bone of contention. In a statement so much of its time that when I cut it down the middle I found Property of 1946, written through it like a stick of rock, he tried to put his instincts into words for Jenny. Quote, It hasn't anything to do with you. It's just that there are some things women don't do, 
they don't become Pope or President or go down to Antarctica. Unquote. Pass that for a moment. It's dumb, right? There's nothing but bigotry to stop women doing any of those things, and given that the US almost got a woman president in 2016, and has a woman vice president as I put this episode together, it's only religion and religiously informed bigots holding out against the progress that saw Harry Darlington's statement seem as dated as it now does. Finronny placed responsibility for a final say on whether Jenny accompanied them south on Harry, which was unfair. Ronnie was the leader and should have led. Allowing this situation to arise this late in the project lay entirely in his remit. Finn convinced his own wife to accompany him south, mainly by citing his less than perfect command of English as hampering his capacity to communicate the expedition's progress and achievements back by radio. Edith Ronnie balked at the idea at first but gradually came around to the opportunity as the best path by which to support her husband. Finn Ronnie secretly drew up legal documents assigning leadership to his wife should anything happen to him. A really strange move, no matter how you assess it, though not because she's a woman. With Ike Schlossback already in the 2IC slot, and experienced well beyond even Finn Ronnie's substantial polar mean, and Harry Darlington in the 3IC slot, this secret nominal bypass of the chain of command should have stood as anathema to a naval man, but Finn argued to those inside his secret circle that having helped plan the expedition, Jackie was best equipped to fulfil its mission should he be taken out of the picture by death or infirmity. It never came to that, but imagine the bun fight if it did. Anywho, by asking Harry to make the decision about Jenny's presence in Antarctica, Finn Ronnie placed responsibility for the ambitions of everyone on board the Beaumont in the three IC's hands, generating an unnecessary dichotomy of taking Jenny south or costing everyone their efforts to date. If anything untoward arose from Harry deciding to accede to the request of the dissenting seven, Ronnie might try to dodge responsibility for that outcome by citing the final say coming from Harry Darlington. Leaders lead. The verb is contained in the noun, and anyone who shirks the responsibility that label carries doesn't deserve the accolades and rewards that arise from any successes associated with it. Knowing enough about her new husband to understand her input on the matter wasn't wanted, Jenny kept her counsel, but saw the opportunity to spend their first year married together as a boon, in spite of the hardships she knew came tied to that opportunity. Harry reluctantly agreed that she would stay aboard and spend the winter at Stonington Island, thereby keeping the expedition together, and thereby opening the path for the first two women to winter in Antarctica. Quartermaster McClary sorted Jenny out with her Antarctic trousseau, and assigned her the task of official tester of cold weather clothing, though I don't think she ever wrote up a formal report on her findings. As word of the impending female presence in Antarctica permeated out of the ship, the journalists showed interest in the expedition it previously couldn't raise. Chilean sensibilities were riled. The first woman to set foot on Antarctica was the Chilean wife of a Norwegian whaler in 1905. Why all this fuss? Because Finn Ronnie wanted fuss, is my suspicion. And with women set to winter, he was getting it. Meanwhile, 
Andy Thompson and Doc McLean got jailed for brawling with a snooty polo player, which I realise is a tautology, in a flash restaurant. The fight arose from the Americans not wearing neckties, but that's just the excuse. The Archduke Franz Ferdinand getting shot moment in any situation wherein a polo player wants to flex. Given the way money gravitates towards fascist empathies and funding any time the cultural playing field look like levelling out, I feel punching polo players is axiomatic, and applaud Thompson and McLean for blackening the bastard's eye. The local press accused expedition members of putting their cigarettes out in locals' coffee cups and of whistling at the local girls, and angry mobs began forming in the streets everywhere American accents were heard. An impartial witness went before the magistrate to recount that Andy received several blows before hitting back. Some bail money, which was never returned, some input from the US consul, and the general knowledge that the hospitalised polo player was notorious for picking fights with foreigners, and the pair regained their freedom, but the expedition was on notice to get out of Dodge. Andy sent the polo player's wife a dozen roses as a final gallant gesture of shit-stirring. At the last minute, the expedition gained a 23rd member, 17-year-old Jorge de Giorgio Valdez. His influential family connections yielded him the berth to fulfil a last-minute Chilean government mandate for representation. Bureaucrats smoothing over the unexpected affront to Ronnie's leadership by an application of expedition funds. Jorge's appointed role as the Ronnie's mess boy didn't align with his personal dreams of becoming the next Bernardo O'Higgins, and he broke a lot of crockery and spilt a lot of soup in Finn Ronnie's lap, expressing his discontent during the transit south. The port of Beaumont sailed from Valparaiso on the 26th of February, the same time in the season that Admiral Cruzen was looking to pull the pin on Operation Hijump. Incomplete updates about the British occupation at Stonington Island ramped up speculation about what the rare would find at the East Base buildings. Rumours are quick on their feet at the best of times, and these ones swept around the ship like a norovirus. The British have claimed East Base under international maritime law regarding salvage. The British are secretly occupying the million dollar, Jackie Ronnie's estimate, facility, and won't back down from their squatters' rights to reside. The British have eaten all the seals, ruining the meat in the best traditions of British cuisine. The British have started a casino with hardtack and cookers. Nothing anyone could do anything about until arrival at the island, whatever the truth of the matter. Two more dogs died of distemper, and the two alpacas died of dogs escaping their enclosures and breaking into the ungulates one. Jorge and Horgette, torn to pieces by the half-wild canines. Doc McLean suggested getting a goat to eat the feed and supply milk, but this spurred Finn Ronnie to spark up about pets, stating there were already too many on the trip, leading to an argument with Harry Darlington about Chinook. Harry held the commander to his original promise that Chinook would hold all the originally stipulated privileges for the duration of the expedition. Someone fed a dog with a cereal bowl and opened up a new avenue of discontent, Ronnie holding closed courts of inquiry into the matter to find and punish the culprit, though no one snitched. 
In response, someone tethered a dog in the companionway outside the Ronnie's cabin and let it howl through the night. Ronnie issued orders that dogs were not to be taken indoors, reopening the already resolved argument with Harry Darlington over Chinook. Sly, mercurial, quick to anger. I'm glad I never served under Finn Ronnie. Though actually, that trio of qualities describes most people, which would explain why I have few friends and don't much care that I have few friends. We'll get back to the rare as they arrive at Stonington Island. For now, let's catch up with the FIDs already on site. Toward the end of January, the sea ice eased up in Marguerite Bay and Ted Bingham radioed that the Trapassi could make an approach. By the 2nd of February, the bay lay clear and the Trapassi house occupants ramped up their efforts to finish reports and letters home and to scrub the hut from end to end to make the best possible impression on visitors. The Trapassi arrived on the 5th, just as those ashore finished transporting outgoing materials to the shoreline. Brandy snaps, scones and a sponge cake greeted Captain Burden, the Newfoundland sealer who took over commanding the Trapassi from Captain Shepard. The unloading ran smoothly and on the 7th, the large crates containing the Oster airframe components floated ashore on a raft made of fuel drums. Gas cylinders from East Base served as rollers to get the crates clear of the shoreline under human hauling power, magnified by block and tackle. The Trapassi upped anchor and departed at dusk the same day, carrying Ted Bingham, John Joyce, Mike Sadler, Bill Salter and Robbie Slesser. The base doctor replaced by newcomer, Doc Butson, recently jailed in Pernambuco for changing into bathing trunks deemed salacious in Rio, which would require some sort of inverse clothing made of antimatter to qualify as unseemly by Rio's present standards of beach attire and leaving behind Bernard Stonehouse as meteorologist, Terry Randall as WOM, Falkland Islander Ken McLeod, recently of Port Lockroy, as handyman, RAF Flight Sergeant Dave Jones as aircraft mechanic, and Fleet Air Arm Veteran Lieutenant William Tommy Thompson as pilot. Thompson served as a swordfish pilot on fleet escort carriers in the Arctic during the war, receiving the Distinguished Service Cross for sinking a U-boat. And if you know anything about aviation, you'll know flying the open cockpit biplane swordfish on and off ships in the Arctic to attack heavily armed and eager to not sink U-boats at a leisurely 120 knots while billowing along just 20 feet above the icy waves constitutes one of the most dangerous things anyone ever did demobbed to civilian life, he took up work as a rat catcher, which isn't a euphemism or some quaint British rhyming slang, but what it says on the box, and he bumped into the James's Wordy and Ma at an officer's club. I don't know if Thompson was there enjoying a post-naval service drink or catching rats behind the wainscoting, but the encounter led to Ma recruiting him for the FIDS, setting in motion his return to high latitudes flying. New stores of wood allowed construction projects to connect the gen shed to the main hut, and over the course of a week, a hangar to house the Oster arose under the carpentry skills of Kevin Walton and David Jones. With its house complete, the Oster came out of its crates for assembly on the 18th of February, but couldn't make any flights as it lacked skis, which someone forgot to load aboard the ship.
That evening, the Chilean frigate Iquique arrived in Back Bay. Ken Butler and the Iquique's captain exchanged formal letters of protest at each other's presence in their nation's sovereign territory, and with this formality out of the way, the FIDs received an invitation to go aboard the ship for a meal and a movie. Five of their number took up the offer, and a far larger contingent of Chilean sailors headed in the opposite direction, stripping the East Base buildings of any remaining valuables and strewing what they didn't want to keep about the island. The Usasae sledges were used as toboggans on the lower slopes of the northeast glacier until they splintered. Those fids remaining ashore felt unable to prevent the East Base ransack, as the Chileans kept them on their toes protecting Base E from similar treatment someone finding three sailors making a fire to keep themselves warm in the newly erected hangar, far too close to the full fuel drums for British comfort. The FIDs did what they could to restore order in the wake of the Akike's visit, and made ready for the autumnal sledging journeys. Tonkin, Mason, Butson and Walton departed on the 2nd of March to seek Bill's Gulch and the Usase members' path to the eastern shore of the Antarctic Peninsula. The party used three dog teams, each hauling 750 pounds. David Jones and Ken McLeod joined Reg Freeman and a fourth team to provide support up to the two-ton depot, keeping the remaining dogs in trim and introducing the newcomers to sledging ops. Shortly after the trail party departed, Chilean and then Argentine warships visited Stonington Island each issuing the standard formal protest over the British presence in Chilean or Argentine territory and receiving the British equivalent in return, before inviting the remaining residents of Trapassi House aboard for dinner and movies, while the sailors went ashore and wrecked up East Base even worse than the crew of the Iquique, leaving the huts worse than when the FIDs first encountered them. Meanwhile, on the trail. The start of the journey proved easy to navigate, as pillars of yellow-stained snow where dog or human urine from preceding trips consolidated the snow against ablation, and strings of dog turds laid out the routes as clearly as the trail markers of the best heritage footpaths anywhere in the world. Kevin Walton applied the euphemism hit-and-miss navigation in his book for the sensitive post-Victorian audience. Heavy snows and weak crevasse lids kept progress slow Though new ski bindings and crampons, suited to receiving caribou moccasin footwear, improved overall human trail performance, particularly on Sodomy Slope, where the crampons proved the boon. On the 13th of March, John Tonkin received word over the radio that the rare arrived, and thought the Bay Sea residents were pulling his leg when they spoke of women numbering among the new East Base residents. Concern about oxygen levels in the double-layer tents prompted the application of candles as canaries, the candle flame giving out long before trouble with the Primus stove offered the more usual warning, already a late marker of carbon monoxide poisoning in progress. The dry conditions kept the tents almost immune from the problem, though Kevin Walton notes later experiences in wetter conditions led to several hypoxic incidents as the damp walls sealed airtight to the point they failed to allow gas diffusion across their previously semi-permeable membranes. Kevin Walton's trail diary offers the first note I'm aware of that anyone spotted the way the weather from either side of the Antarctic Peninsula took turns at being shitty, 
battling it out along the spine of the land for a turn at turning on blizzards and fogs or still air and sunshine, a phenomenon subsequent cohorts of meteorologists would map and which subsequent cohorts of pilots would curse. John, nine lives, Tonkin, saved his companions from gravity-catalyzed doom during the route-finding trip. While selecting a route between glaciers entering the valley lying a few yards before them in flat light, a dropped chocolate wrapper winked out of existence at the quartet's feet. Chocolate does that in my presence, but the wrappers obey the rules of object permanence. The wrapper didn't cease existing. It fell out of view behind an edge. Realising this edge lay at their feet, hidden from view by the whiteout's erasure of shadow and contrast, Tonkin's perspective shifted. The glaciers lay thousands of feet below, and the team stood on a cornice above the drop onto them. Tonkin spoke quietly. I think we had better step back very slowly. They did, which is how we know they did. Laid up for days on end, Dougie Mason relieved the boredom by assigning calculus problems. Kevin Walton used this as his mathematical prompt to map possible sledge loads against numbers of dogs in a team, solving for X where X is the minimum number of days in the field for the maximum load pulled the maximum distance. Three days after the last near shave, Tonkin experienced another test of his nine lives reputation when he, Doc Butson and Dougie Mason departed camp leaving Walton to attend to the Orange Bastards, a name denoting supporters of Glasgow Rangers, a slur used against Northern Ireland Protestants loyal to the Orange Order, a spookily prescient reference to Trump followers, or a reference to a sledging team comprising largely orange-coated dogs of questionable ancestry, to reconnoitre a glacier they intended traversing. Three miles out, they tethered their dogs and carried on downhill on foot, it took them longer than expected to find a useful vantage point, and on turning back for the sledge, the trio found their tracks increasingly covered by blown snow. They found the dog team already blanketed by drift, and spent three hours on a compass course watching the sledge meter, reliant entirely on dead reckoning as the snow already obliterated the sledge tracks, and more falling snow, later joined by a fine mist, reduced visibility to the point Butson couldn't see the dogs from the back of the sledge. That the party didn't separate in the dash is amazing in itself, but that they found their camp in the conditions they faced is a feat of steady nerves in a situation where panic would be entirely understandable and catastrophic. Dougie mapped the course and John held the team to the heading. When the sledge meter indicated they'd travelled the correct distance, they turned 90 degrees left, Dougie having laid an upwind default into their course. A rough but almost foolproof method for removing wind-mediated uncertainty from the final leg of a navigational solution. Holding to the new bearing, they encountered a fragment of toilet paper after 200 yards of roped-in sweeps, and this gave away that the camp lay nearby. Using the paper as the new foundation for further sweeps, they found the tents 20 yards away, upwind, obviously. They spent so many subsequent days laid up that John Tonkin complained of bed sores and began applying rubbing alcohol before leaving the tent to get some exercise in the blowing snow and strong winds.
port of Beaumont arrived at this juncture in proceedings, making all further events at Stonington Island international. So I'll end this chapter here and tell the rest of the story of 1947 at Stonington Island as a combined British and American narrative. And there was a lot going on at other FIDS bases and a new FIDS ship coming into commission that warrants some attention. But as the presence of the rare Operation High Jump and increasing activity among Chilean and Argentine naval forces around Antarctica, the narratives, once again, are difficult to keep entirely chronological. Ice coffee, doing its damnedest. Shouting out to Rory and Marcus, 20 years late, but running to catch up. Mm -hmm.